What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right. We've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one, and we told him to fuck off. And then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. (laughs) Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah, it's the Einzer wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Einzwick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get... Pretty much. If you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I, I know. See it. Me too. I see it. He's using his sewing machine. Yep. Playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all. Yeah. A shit website. Yeah. But now, now he's, he's got a working website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best dog pseudicals, <laughs> the best canine pseudicals. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah, it. It's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He and did so much R&D, didn't he? Oh, huge. And yep. the, the product is amazing. Yep. And so he's got one. training videos, everything showing he trains and supports people how to get the dog into it, yep. how to make it safe, yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes. He's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stolen stole his a tug. stuff. Yeah. I stole a tug. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this. Yep. So I guess it doesn't count. But yeah. Mojo Dog Did you pay for it? I mean- With your time? Yeah. So it's not really a theft? Yeah. Okay. Uh, everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainer's shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah, you know, high quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all that's the impressive. things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that yep. real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo, get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino. Yeah, that yeah. sounds about Daniel right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South yeah. Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A little cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there. There's some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the dog, dog club. club. SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Doberman doing his little course running around. But that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls, balancing and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah. The sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah. So we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We, we do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're we wonderful. Love you. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Welcome back, everyone. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm wonderful. Two good episodes with lots of good feedback. All right. Laura Shannon and the one before where we started talking about from biting to barking. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah, changed some lives. Yeah, a lot of feedback on that. Yeah. yeah. I've had a lot of good conversations with people about it. They've been very intrigued about it. In some cases, it's struck a few chords mm-hmm. or a few nerves where people felt like, that's been happening to me and I've been suffering in silence over it. Mm. It was nice to hear you guys have an open conversation, share your vulnerabilities and share the conversation of especially Mando and Narelle. They were very interested in that whole concept. So I enjoyed having the follow-up with it as well. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. We've got a new topic. I'd love to hear it. Behavioral euthanasia. It's a heavy mm. topic. Yeah. We've picked through some of these chords before, mm. but it's still worth talking about because it's part of a much bigger conversation mm-hmm. with a lot of different avenues to tease apart. Mm. It's actually a request to talk about this. Yep. Don't need to go in the details of why. No. But it is something that is relevant in the space and beyond any one person's personal experiences with it. Yeah. And I'm happy to talk about all my personal experiences with it. I have recommended behavioral euthanasia a handful of times, not many. Yep. Happy to talk about how it came to be. But also I think it is in the zeitgeist a fair bit because the ongoing trainer wars continue. People are still battling online. And one of the things that we often hear is people who are unprepared to use any form of punishment and tools and whatnot are going to recommend behavioral euthanasia faster than somebody that does or more frequently or whatever. And I think it's worth exploring the the fact that as a trainer, you are going to come across dogs that you can't help. Absolutely. And I think that that's going to happen on both sides of the equation. And I don't want to frame this as a positive versus balanced talk, but it is worth understanding that we as balanced trainers do encounter dogs that I have for sure encountered dogs where I'm like, I, I can't help. Yep. Like, this is outside of my remit. You know, I'll front load it. In my experiences, every time that I've done that, it's because it's been a dangerous dog mm. for sure. And it's been because the triggers can't be avoided. Mm. I think that one of the lucky things that we're able to do is to be able to carry out behavioral euthanasia on dogs that it's appropriate for. I think that in many cases, 
those dogs are tortured within their own minds at that time. Yep. And so it is a lucky thing that we're able to do. I don't want to quote old mate Peter and say the sweet release of death. I can't, what, what's, what's her name that, in the quote, Ingrid Newkirk. Yeah, is it? Then she has a quote about like the nicest thing you can do is kill a dog or something. I can't remember the details. Words to the effect of yeah, yeah. But there are times where the dog can be so far gone and is such a mess that it is the right thing to do. Oh, mate, I totally agree. However, if you transport me back in time with a different mindset when I first entered the industry. I would be remiss to say that that wasn't a conversation that I was prepared to have back then. Mm. However, that was only limitations in experience. Mm. Through experience and through life and through the teachings and educations and actually eyeballing dogs as you're talking about now, I'm totally different about it now. It's not that it's my go-to. It's very far from that. Like I still consider it an option, but there will be a lot of protocols that I'll personally go through before I'll say, yeah, that's a behavioral euthanasia issue. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I think we should talk about. Yeah. What I did want to talk about too is it's sometimes not just something that's completely obvious and it's always been there. Like I'll use Max as an example. Mm -hmm. Our German Shepherd that we had here, he was the imported dog. Alex Zuden Groenberken. He was fine for most of his life. You knew him, you trained him, Mm -hmm. you were part of his education. I knew him well. He was literally my dog. I handled him since he was a four-year-old when we bought him. He was fine for most of his life, but something changed. What that was, we were ascertaining that it was something to do with probably a tumor or something like that, which Mm -hmm. is advice that we had from the vet. He changed considerably and it was notable. Mm -hmm. There was something that went wrong with Max to the point where he wasn't distinguishing who he was biting and who he wasn't anymore. He bit me. You know, like he bit me. That was confrontational for me because, I mean, him and I had been through some heavy times before. Not in a bad way, but, Mm. you know, like just through all his frustration and learning and reteaching him skills that he'd been taught previously, like reshaping skills, I should say. Mm -hmm. For him to bite me in the way that he did where he blanked, I realized right there and then it was like dementia. Mm. You know, he become demented in the way that he was behaving. Yeah. So for me, even though that was very confrontational and very upsetting, I struggled deeply with that. And the staff, we had to have conversations with the staff about it because not only was I close to Max, but they were close to Max as well. So I had to consider their feelings on it as well, but also tell them how dangerous he had become Mm. and how unpredictable he'd become in his behavior. And together we agreed that for the safety of everybody and for the release of the suffering that obviously Max was going through because it was very undignified behaviour of who he had become Mm. versus who he was. He was a strong, proud, tough dog. But, you know, like he had some health issues before. He he had some bowel issues that he was going through. He had to be on fibre. You know, there was a lot of medical expenses that we were putting him on, which we were happy to do. That was fine. But – Obviously, what was happening to him had progressed. Mm. So the staff were involved. I was involved. I was involved from the behavioral point of view. The staff were involved on an emotional point of view. And then we spoke with our vet as well. And the vet said, Glenn, you already know the answer to this question. I'm just supporting you and I'm ready to do it when you guys pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'm not going to put anybody's life in danger because that's what it had got to with Max was – it had got to a position where their life was potentially in danger. Mm -hmm. He was a 10-year-old dog. He wasn't the dog that he used to be as far as strength and power. 
but he was still plenty powerful enough to put someone down if he put his mind to it. Mm -hmm. There was no way that myself or the owners of the business or the staff were prepared to make that happen just because we love the dog. Mm. And because we love the dog and because we knew who he was and what he had changed into, we made a collective decision that the best thing to do was to comfortably euthanize him. Mm -hmm. And we all struggled. It was a tough moment. I will be honest with everybody here. I wasn't present during the euthanasia. I didn't feel good about it. And the staff that knew him chose to be with him with the vet and they slipped him off nice and quietly. Mm -hmm. I struggled with it in my own way because I kind of felt like I had cheated him a little bit and it reminded me a bit of Dutch and I was having some demons about it. But then I realized this needed to be done. Mm -hmm. This was a fucked up situation Mm. and Max wasn't in the right frame of mind anymore. Mm. So I understand the torment that people go through. I entirely get it. There are times where you suffer externally and internally over these decisions, especially if you think you're doing it too soon. And especially if you have a beloved connection with the dogs. I wasn't as close to Max as I was with Randy. I've had Randy since he was, you know, like an eight week old puppy, but he was a very loving dog with me. I had a good relationship with me. I I enjoyed training. I was proud of him. I thought, you know, he's come a long way. At the start, I thought he had a lot of limitations in his potential, but he picked up. He was a nice, honest dog to work with. Those sort of things really got under my skin when I was trying to deal with the confrontation of having to euthanize him because I didn't think he was ready for it yet. Mm. I've had plenty of conversations with other trainers in the industry, other professionals in the industry, and just clients in the industry who have suffered immensely over that decision, knowing that they should have because of how dangerous the dog had become or the predicament that the dog was actually in around the time that that decision was bearing some fruit. But nonetheless, it was still a very painful one to make Yeah, regardless. Yeah, it's never an easy decision. No. For sure. And I think one of the things that always comes into mind whenever it's even on the table, I think when you're discussing behavioral euthanasia is it can seem a bit dicky, but like the preservation of a dog's legacy a little bit Yep. in that, like if you can see where it's headed, particularly if this is a client's dog and, and they love the dog and it's been a family member and, you know, something has gone wrong and something has gone awry or, and usually it is a health related thing that leads to behavior problems. Because dogs get sick and unfortunately I've only in my whole life, I've only ever had one dog that bloody died of natural causes. All the rest of them have just sort of got to the point where they're so decrepit that you have to do it, which is a terrible thing in and of its own. Mm. I say that to Remy every night. I'm like, bro, you, 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 you better die one day by yourself because I don't want you just fading away to nothing and me having to make that decision. It's, it's, an it's an too awful, much of a heartbreak. It's an awful experience. There are some people who say, well, you owe it to the dog to be there with them. And some of those people who say that have never experienced it before. Mm. And I've done a lot after Harley died and I really suffered immensely over he died. You know, him and I were very close. We were kindred spirits in a lot of way. Probably for about two to three weeks, I went into complete shutdown after he died. I suffered immensely over it. And I thought once that happened, it'll never happen with another dog. I'll never allow that to happen. My heart is hardened to mm. that sort of predicament. That's a complete and utter yeah, fucking lie. That. <laughs> That's a lie. I suffered just as much over Dutch and Gammon and Storm and all the Roddies that are all up here. I've suffered them over other dogs. Quince, my, oh, God, fucking Quince. I was a blubbering mess, my little first little French bulldog. 
I had. That was terrible. Mm. And then when Ladybug was on the cusp of dying, again, all of the feelings came up, all of the raw emotions, all of the torment, the sufferance that you go through. You're in a vortex and a whirlpool that are colliding with each other. Yeah. And it's bad when it is a physical health issue, right? Like that's terrible. But when it's a mental health issue, like it's behavioral, right? And and you have to decide at that point – like, first of all, you have a responsibility to people at large, yeah. right, about not allowing this dog to be able to kill someone else or, or to damage someone in, in an irreparable way or, 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 you know, all the many and various things that a dog can do to really fuck up someone's life. You sort of owe it to the people at large to not allow that to happen. But then also, I always think that, that to an extent, there's a legacy of the dog, especially if this hasn't always been the case with the dog. Like if it's something that's come in with maturity or it's come in with dementia as the dog gets older, that kind of stuff, yep. where there's an element of like, I have to preserve who that dog is rather than right now it can be a dog that lived a great life and then something went wrong and we had to euthanize him rather than like he's a dog that ripped someone's arm off and Mm. then we had to euthanize him. And I think that's the tricky part. And so for me, I can think of all the dogs. You don't forget them easily that I have said to clients like, hey, I think the right thing to do is this. And in every instance, the dogs were on meds. We tried that. And in every instance, the dog was very dangerous the triggers were not obvious. Like, you know, I deal in dangerous dogs all the time. I love Mm. fucking dangerous dogs. Dangerous dogs are like, that's my bread and butter. I like dealing in those dogs. And when there's real triggers, then you can be like, okay, well, we just avoid those things. Or when those are around, we know that there's safety protocols that we have to put in. Like, but it's when a dog becomes unstable or that the triggers are not observable to us or that there's, you know, like in every instance that I've ever recommended it, you can tell just looking in the eyes of the dog, like you're not there. Mm -hmm. Like there's something going on behind here. And with a few of the dogs, well, let me rephrase, with two of the dogs that I've recommended it, I've known the dog very well prior to something going terribly wrong with the dog. And you can tell immediately looking at the dog, like, oh, you're not who you were when I knew you in the past. That's gone. And now you're you're something different. And that thing is dangerous to be around. And you're not even in control of yourself anymore. Mm. And that has always been the gate that for me, you kind of have to go through before you decide to make that decision. That's when you're confronting Mr. Hyde. Yeah. Totally. Like I said to you the other day, there are certain characteristics and elements of your own dog. Like even, let's say, for example, predatory drive. If you're not experienced in predatory drive and you have suddenly seen a burst of it, like let's say, for example, your dog has come across an animal in the wild when you're out on a walk and you just cannot get through to your dog in any way, shape or form. That's a very confronting moment for anybody. That's a reason why a lot of dog trainers get calls out is, you know, like I was going for a walk. This has never happened before. My dog's been fine with other dogs. It's been fine with cats and children and also, but it saw a a wallaby or a possum or something like that and pursued it until I couldn't call it back or it caught it and end up dispatching it. People are very, very, and rightfully so, like it's a tormenting thing to see in the dog because- You don't recognize that characteristic or that personality in the dog. It's a trait that you just didn't see coming. And when you do see it coming, you look at the dog and say, who are you? Mm. We went through this in the other session we were talking through. If you listen back to from biting to barking, 
but it is very confronting and it's a conversation I think I've had with a myriad of people, not just dog owners, dog professionals. People have been in and I said, fuck me, Dad, I've just never seen this side of the dog before or when the dog is actively aggressive towards them, mm. you know, and the dog has come up the lead after them or something like that and they say, holy shit, Glenn, I've never been so scared of my own dog in all of my life of having it. I've never seen this side of my dog and I don't know what inspired that behaviour or where that behaviour ignited from. And sometimes it's not as easy as to explain away. Sometimes Mm. it just isn't. Like when Max bit me, I wasn't ready for it. It was alarming that he actually did it. And then I realised, oh, you're deteriorating. Mm. Something has gone really askew here. Like I said, I could almost do anything with Max. I could probably be unbearable to him and he wouldn't bite me. Mm. There are situations, even sometimes where he was frustrated and he nipped me in the leg and in training and stuff like that, that was kind of like a cheeky thing. Like, you know, like I, I need a, a, a lightning rod, mm. you're it. But he, he never did it hard. It was just like, oh, sorry, I had to do it. I'm, I'm just <laughs> agitated about Pat yeah. running around and screaming in front of me. Yeah, yeah. I could laugh that off with him, you yeah, know, yeah. like a you cheeky bugger, you know, you big fat lump trying to get one over me on me like that. But when he bit me, like he was committed to it and mm. he was trying to bite me hard. It was only by very good fortune that I skeeved him in the way that I had a gate there in front of me and I was able to block him out and stop him from doing it. The weird thing was to bring him back up and to talk about this story, when he came to, you could see the look in his eyes like, what happened? Yeah. That was one of those pinnacle moments where you look at the experience and go, fuck, how completely heartbreaking that this is happening to this poor old dog, Mm. that he doesn't even know what's going on. Like even when I was acting a little standoffish towards him and so forth, you could just see him like, why is this happening? Mm. Why have you become this way yourself? He couldn't identify with who I was because I became a little afraid of him right there, the unpredictability of his nature I too had changed. Mm. So he had changed in front of my eyes and I had changed in front of his eyes. Mm. Together we had both morphed into a completely different characteristic, one that was unfamiliar to the other. Mm. That's something that people need to understand and become aware of is not only does the dog change but also you do as well when you become aware I'm not dealing with the same person. Mm. You know, look, I've spoken to professionals and I'm sure – in your well, absolutely with you. When you speak to people who have to draw a firearm on somebody and take their life or something like that, because I've spoken to police and military people who have done those sort of things before. And even for them, those situations are full of the most confronting moments that you could ever go through. Mm. And it's like a capsule of time just explodes into all different speeds around you. Time speeds up, time slows down. Time freezes entirely. It's all these weird phenomenon occur in those moments and you change suddenly and it changes you. You become more wary or more even you lose a little confidence in those sort of situations. Yeah, for sure. Lots of things happen. That's definitely observable for sure. Yeah. Like, and we've talked about that in the past. Like when you get bitten, it makes you more likely to get bitten. Yeah. Like, because now there's like a, oh shit around dogs. Like, especially, you know, when people start out and you're, you're only dealing in the easy cases or you're just doing obedience and whatever, and you've never even seen a dog really bite anyone, never seen a real proper bite. Yeah. I was kind of lucky in that when I started, the way I started out in dogs was I saw a live bite, right? Like yep. and, and in the army and I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. But once it happens to you, then you're different afterwards and the dogs read that for sure. But your situation, just in that, your situation is 
a little different in that because of the mindset of who you are and, oh, what yeah, the, and totally. the job you're doing. Totally. It's my favorite saying, same, same, but different. Yeah. Because yes, it can still be confronting. And yes, even seasoned professionals can still get PTSD from having an experience like that. Whereas sometimes you don't because you kind of think, well, that's the bad guy and that's what happens in a bad guy situation. Yeah. You know, like when you're bitten by a dog. Yeah. Watching a military working dog bite a bad guy, as horrific as that was, like the bite, is a totally different thing to watching someone's pet dog come up the line at right. them and severely bite them. And a pet dog person. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Who doesn't have I mean. the mentality of warfare or yeah, preparedness. Yeah, a totally different thing. Yeah. And so I think that really changes you for sure. And I think that when that happens to you with your own dog, it makes it more likely to happen to you with yeah. your own dog because now you're going to start moving in a way like you're the prey. You're right? different. You become yeah. different. Yeah. They're the predator and you're the prey suddenly and you're going to yep. start the moment. And I think that's one of the interesting things when dogs are playing or even when they're just in life, when you see two dogs chasing each other around and they're like one bites the other one on the butt and they change and they go other directions and then that goes bad. You know, when you see like dogs that are playing happily and then suddenly it turns into a fight. It's usually or very often the case that the dog that was pretending to be the rabbit, they're taking it in turns. You mm. be the wolf, I'll be the rabbit. If the dog that is having a turn of being the rabbit thinks for even one moment, oh, fuck, I'm really the rabbit, the other one immediately thinks I'm really the wolf mm. and now I'm going to bite you. You see that happen for sure when people are dealing with a dog when they've had a really bad experience around it. They adopt the mindset of like, I'm in danger around this dog. Even if it were a peculiar set of circumstances that led to that first bite happening that aren't being reproduced here currently, the dog looks at the person and is like, you look like you're afraid of me. Maybe there's a reason for that, right? And you like, smell like it too. Yeah. Mm. Like you're showing me all the signs of, of prey. That must mean that I'm the predator and mm. the, the relationship dynamic changes. That's something I think people have to kind of keep in mind about like when you are dealing with a dangerous dog, like your own dog or, or you know, a, a client dog, whatever, that has had that like success in a proper bite. Not only are you now dealing with, okay, well, if we've got to find the triggers. We've got to figure out why that happened. We've got to decide, you know, what kind of bite was it? What were the circumstances that led to it? Did the dog make the decision to do it versus not wasn't really in control of itself? If it did decide to, if it was in control of itself and decided, yep, I'm biting you, was it because it felt like it needed to in order to survive or because it just wanted to because that seemed like the right thing to do in the moment, right? Mm. Versus... Did the dog just redirect it? It's not even aware that it bit you. Like it just bit something that was close, you know? Like those are all the sort of gates and the different branch plans of thinking like, oh, how am I going to deal with this? But all of them, if it's the person's own dog, results in that person acting very differently around the dog. And the other insert there is relief equals reward. Totally, yeah, 100%. Mm. And so now you've got to start thinking when you're assessing that kind of stuff, am I able to even get a clear assessment anymore in the presence of this person, because now the dog is like, well, that's the person I bite. And so yep. you can really, it, it is, becomes really easy to misdiagnose a dog in that moment mm. and be like, this is what I do. And you could look at that dog and go, right, well, he's super dangerous because he's going to bite you first chance he gets. But that just might be the, the cycle that that dog is trapped in with that person. Yep, and indeed. by putting them with a new person, the dog like has the opportunity to reset because the person isn't acting like someone that's about to get bitten by the dog. And especially if they know, like you're not going to stitch someone up and give them a dog that has a bite history and don't tell them about it, but it didn't happen to them. So they're not going to flinch in the same way. And if they're a competent handler, maybe they can make a, a more true assessment of the dog. So for me, as I said, I've only recommended behavioral euthanasia a few times. 
And one I'm really happy to talk about because someone very close to me and it was a disaster. So it was from the start, it was a disaster. It was a bull terrier that they got at six weeks old. The mother had tried to kill it. It had been bottle raised because they'd gotten it away from the mother. She'd killed a couple of others in the litter and was from the jump clearly never really in control of itself. Like did all the bizarre things that stalking, have you ever seen that bull terrier stalking? Yeah. Man, that is scary to see. Sorry, not stalking, trancing they call it, right? Where they just walk really slowly like through foliage and stuff. The dog Mm. would do that. And then mid that would just come out of that in crazy aggression, come flying at you in intense aggression. The dog didn't like people, wasn't interested in developing any kind of relationship. And I tried everything. People are funny because you kind of fall in love with your own dog instantly. Like as you're driving home from having picked up a dog, people are in love with it. Of course. Yeah. Like right away, we're programmed to be that way. And even though this dog hadn't ever shown any affection and hadn't really ever shown anything that indicated that it wanted to be a part of this family or that it even liked any of the people, there's like a huge hesitation to do anything with that dog, let alone euthanize it. It, Like even to sort of move it on or move it to somewhere else or, or even just move it out of the house because it's a responsibility people feel like this is my dog. I've chosen this dog. I paid money for it. I picked it. I've driven home. And in that car ride with this little puppy that is just a mush of cuteness, Mm. you can't tell anything what's going on with the six week old puppy at that point. They've made a commitment to themselves and to the dog that you're my dog and I'm going to do the best that I can for you. Yep. And then as it sort of exposes over time and time where, you know, now there's a very dangerous animal in the house, right? And it doesn't like anybody. It doesn't want to develop a relationship. That dog especially was crazy resource garter. Yep. So you couldn't have anything out. It was very difficult to try and even engage with the dog, very difficult to even try and communicate with the dog, was suspicious of taking food from the hand and for no reason that was discernible from like when they got it at six weeks old. To the point where I said a couple of times, I was like, I'm out of my depth here. And this is so far gone from the inputs that I'm giving this dog, it's not giving me the outputs that I'm expecting to see. And this isn't my first day. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's not operating within an operant process the way that I would expect. You know, I'm trying to find reinforcers. I'm trying to find punishers. I'm trying to see how it responds to pressure. I'm trying to see how it, it opens up when I yield, like all those kinds of things. And there was no pattern. There was nothing that I could discern and go like, okay, this is what the dog's thinking in this moment. And the dog would switch gears on what it was doing and thinking in like dangerously fast fashion. And so for me, it got to the point where I just said, I was like, I can't help here. This is so far outside of my skill set beyond teaching you how to manage this dog. Mm. But then we got to think like, what life is that for this dog that is intermittently losing its mind in aggression over nothing, right? So like it would just be in the yard doing the trancing, walking around and then just snap out of that and go hardcore aggression at the first thing it could find, Mm. right? And so- You've got to think at some point, even if you've made this commitment to the dog and you think, all right, well, like I'm going to manage it for the rest of its life. Okay. We don't have a house dog. We don't have what we wanted. We don't have the pet that we thought we were going to get when we got the dog. Fair enough. That happens all the time. People turn out like you want one kind of dog, you get another, but then you live within the, you know, what you have with the dog, but then you have to look at and go like, what life is this dog living? You know, and it's not just that he's in a kennel. He's intermittently trying to kill the kennel when his trancing turns off and just starts randomly attacking the first thing that it can find. And so at some point you have to look at a dog like that and go, 
what life do you have? And are we better off for everyone? Is it redu- Of course, it reduces the stress of the family after a period of mourning and being upset over all of that. But for the dog, you've got to think like, fuck, I don't know about dog afterlife. I don't know what happens after all of this, but you're in torment currently. Mm. And we can end that for you at the minimum. And we can do that safely and we can do that humanely or else you're going to rip your own teeth off on this fence that you keep biting. You know, you're going to do yourself damage that we then can't fix for you. We can't even intervene because you're too dangerous to be trained to be handled and that sort of thing. So for me, it's not something I've ever taken lightly. And I'm happy to talk about that case because like I said, it's, it's family member's dog. That's how I was involved in it. But at some point with all dogs that are displaying unpredictable aggression and aggression, you know, even when it is predictable, but it's so dangerous that it can't be managed correctly and can't be worked with. You know, I think at some point behavioral euthanasia has to be something that is, is on the table and has to be considered and considered last. Right. I think there's plenty of people who I think consider behavioral euthanasia way before I would even entertain the idea. Yeah, but it's because they're completely limited in their tool set. Yeah. They have like one or two tools in their toolbox. Yeah. And that's it. They've got a hammer and a chisel. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things, you know, that I think certainly there are fates worse than death. And one of those is constant ongoing torment, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. I mean, torture is torture. Yeah. No matter and, what it is. And so for sure, it it's off the table for me to recommend behavioral euthanasia to anyone yep. unless the behavior we've tried everything we can think of to get rid of it. And in a skillful manner as well, right? Like for sure, I'm prepared to use punishment before I, before I recommend euthanizing your dog. And I'm going to, I'm pretty good at that. Like Mm. I know how to do it. I'm going to do it efficiently, but if it's not reducing the behavior and the issue is as well, in every instance, the behavior is unpredictable. So it can't be punished reliably because there's no trigger that's going to bring it on. And then when the dog finds itself in that extreme aggression, that's not, a punishable moment, really. Like when the dog's gone like that, that's no time to be punishing a dog. It's quite a tormenting thing for the victim in a situation where they can't tell what brings on the aggression from the aggressor. Mm -hmm. I have some experience in that with a step parent. Mm. So I I understood that. I'm not demonizing the person. We're talking about mental health. When I was a kid, my stepfather could be very hot and cold with the way he behaved. In the beginning, it was very hard to determine what frame of mind he was. But I tell you what, I learned to read that motherfucker like a book Mm. because I could tell the way he drove up the driveway, the way the car came up the driveway, the way he closed the door on the car, the way he jiggled his key coming up. I knew that he was in a triggered mode and I knew to stay away from him in those points of view. But I didn't know that before. I just had to learn to read the very extreme subtleties and then not be a reason for him to trigger into rage over Mm. certain things. There's a myriad of stories I could tell. One which I will share is a colleague of mine, and I know this goes, you know, backwards and forwards between each of the sexes, but a colleague of mine years ago met this lady and him and her seemed like the ideal couple. I remember one day we went away for a boys weekend and the phone kept ringing all the time, you know, like his phone kept ringing He was talking to her. He'd have to walk outside, talk to her, come back in, talk to her, come back in. You know, we jumped in the spa and when we jumped in the spa, he had like gashes on his body. I said to him, dude, what happened? You know, like you look like you've been in a fight with a fucking polar bear. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, just sort of laughed it off. (laughs) But over time I got to realise that he was a beaten guy. He was getting the shit kicked out of him 
by his partner. And as I said, I know this happens in both sides. I'd never experienced it within. This is my first true experience outside of my own experiences with somebody else. Mm. We got drunk one night and he kind of revealed to me some of the things that were happening to him. But as he said, he couldn't predict what it was and there were always eggshells that he was stepping on to try not to trigger Mm. his partner to attack him and he couldn't figure out what it was. And then I said to him, well, why are you still there, man? And he said, because she can be really sweet sometimes. Mm. And when we do connect, it's in a really deep and loving moment. And that's what dog people feel about their dogs. Yeah. So I didn't realize that until I realized how people feel about those sort of situations. And it becomes a, a bit of a Stockholm syndrome with them sometimes is that they then make excuses for their oppressor or their mm. attacker. They feel that they understand them and that things will change and they will come around and things will become different. But in some of those situations, they just won't. Mm. And I've had to have these conversations with dog owners before leading up to behavioral euthanasia where I've shared these vulnerabilities and I said, man, things aren't going to change. If anything, they're going to get worse. Mm. Like you can see this situation is escalating because the point before where I said relief equals reward Some of these dogs or some of these situations, the aggressor feels like, and as you pointed out, you made a very good speech about it before, I feel good or I feel that I can end the way that I'm feeling by biting you. Mm. And that's a fucked up situation to be in. But it's a worse situation when you feel that you've got to cover for them. And please don't misread me on this. I know how deeply connected and how deeply in love people can be with their pets or their oppressors or their attackers in these situations. But in many cases, these situations won't change until you take immediate action. Mm. And the immediate action is get yourself out of those situations. Mm. Just don't be in a situation where you're going to be repeat attacked or worse, even killed by your dog. And there are situations, there are people, you know, that are six feet under now because they've decided that they want to push through with this and the dog has killed them. Yeah. Well, that's the terrifying thing, mate, is like, I don't know the stats, but quite a lot of people get killed by their dog. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not talking it's not millions per year, but even more than one is too many. You know what I mean? Recently in New South Wales, there were, and you know, I hate talking about these things because it's my heart dog breed, but there were two Rottweilers that attacked and killed a, an infant. Yeah. It was publicized. And it sickens me to the stomach to think that somebody's baby was, yeah. you know, like set upon by two dogs. There was a very good post I should try and find this post by a young lady on Instagram who was talking about these dogs just shouldn't be around young children like it's okay to be done. Mm. There needs to be distance and understand you're still dealing with dogs and they don't understand it the same way. Yeah, Like we just can't make these unsettling predictions to say, oh, my dogs are perfectly okay with children. These people obviously didn't know. I'm not blaming those people. What they went through was horrific, horrific. They lost their child and it was a family situation, I believe, where the dog belonged to their father. Fuck's sake, what an absolute, what a nightmare. Horrific. What a nightmare of a situation to unfold for that whole family. Like your son's child was taken by your dogs in a situation where it was supposed to be a loving family get together and a gathering where it all should have gone down well. It's poorly interpreted, Mm. poorly interpreted about a situation. I've got a dog here that's just come in from Holland and he's a lovely fucking dog. Beautiful Rottweiler that's just arrived in the country. 
And the owner of the dog, he's got young kids. That's why the dog is here. He's here to get some training. He's basically said to me, find out everything you know about this dog. So far, beautiful. But mm. I've also told him, I said, he is a lovely dog. Bold, confident, brave, hasn't shown me any untoward aggression. Even with other dogs in the field, I've video, you know, like I put him on Instagram this morning. Him and I were kicking a ball around while there was 20 dogs playing in daycare next to him and he couldn't give a shit. I haven't seen anything unsettling about this dog. Nonetheless, we've still had a very serious conversation about the potentials of what can go wrong and what need to be addressed. Mm. And the good thing is, is he's listening and he's taking that under advisement. Already, while the dog is here, he's building a run at home, you know, like he can separate the dog from the children. We've had the conversation about you cannot leave this dog unsupervised with your children, cannot and must not. Again, it's been taken under advisement. That's all you can do as a trainer in a lot of these situations. You can't be the person that pulls the trigger. What I'm trying to say, you need to be the voice of reason. That's what your job is, to be the voice of reason, to let them know what the potentials are in these situations and also sound out what their responsibilities are and what could possibly happen if they ignore your advice. Mm. Only then I believe that you can walk away with a clear conscience because you've literally told them everything that needs to be done. Now, if something happens, it doesn't mean that you're not going to feel like absolute shit and your blood's not going to run cold in your body. I've been around to people's places where I've trained dogs for them. I've told them the concerns I have. I've told them what I believe needs to be happened. I've then found out that bad bites have taken place after that. My blood runs cold every single time. Yeah. But I know, and I've even had them sign declarations where I've gone around and said, you need to sign this to basically say we've had this conversation. When I've had board and trained dogs in, same sort of situation where I suspect that things could possibly go wrong. I get them to sign a declaration. My advice to you, if you're running a board and train business or a a daycare or private lessons or anything like that, where you are dealing with those dogs, have some form of declaration where if they ever do turn the tables on you and say, Oh, I went to Pat Stewart and he gave me this ridiculous advice. And you know, now my dog's bitten my child. Well, you can turn around and say, well, actually we had a very different conversation than the one that you're saying through anger and disappointment because something went wrong. Yeah. Our conversation was this. I explained to you the type of behaviour that your dog has. I also explained to you that through the one-hour session that we've just had, which is not about transforming your dog's life, your responsibilities here going forward and what you need to do, it's all here in the declaration. Yeah. I had a client. I had a wild circumstance like that many years ago. Yeah. It was very strange. It was a a very wealthy person. Yep. The only reason that I was there was because the dog had bit a delivery person. Yep. And I was friends with a friend of the delivery person. And that's how I ended up involved in it. Yep. And they had said, you need to do something about this. And the person was like, this is clearly not a dog problem. The dog, like it just bit the guy on the ass as he was making a delivery. It Mm. chased him out and bit him in the ass. And it wasn't a serious bite. It was a, and the dog was a, like a GSP. It wasn't a like really dangerous situation, but it was enough that he got bit in the ass. It drew blood. Like it was a proper puncture. Yeah. Yeah. So I went around and it just was, fucking madness in the house, right? The kids climbing all over. The kid's nude for starters. This like probably like three or four year old kid is just running around the house like a fucking lunatic. There's no control in the house. And so I immediately realized like, oh, this dog's got no hope because if this family can't control the kid in any way, shape or form and won't, even though it was a mansion, beachside mansion in Bronte, it was a disaster with inside, right? It just sounds like those 
perfectly eccentric families. Yeah, crazy people. Yeah, eccentric to yeah. the fucking point of of lunacy. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, my guess is family money. Uh, <laughs> you know, because I don't know how they ever made any money, and they were clearly worth tens of or maybe hundreds of millions. Oh wow. Anyway, it was a disaster. It was me in the house trying to convince them that they had a, a problem when they wouldn't accept that there was one. It was fucking madness. In the end, I ended up not sending them an invoice because I was like, I didn't provide any value. I'm not sending any. I don't want to, any connection. I don't want anything on this. Yeah. Yep. And I didn't get them to sign it because they wouldn't have anyway, but I took pretty detailed notes on like, this is how it all went down and kept like a log of like, this is what happened. This is what I... I said, this is what I did because it was just a disaster. It mm. was, and that's exactly the sort of situation that is, that was going to be a behavioral euthanasia, but it's fucking not right. Like that was just a dog set up to fail. It was just a dog that was living its best life, chasing people around in the house, no structure in the house. You know what I mean? Like the dog was having a great time and there was nothing wrong with the dog. They'd probably paid a fortune for a really good bloodline mm. that just was like a mouthy sort of dog. Yeah. It was a disaster. And so that's one of the things that, those cases are very few and far between, but those are the circumstances where that dog for sure would have ended up being put down, yep. right? Yep. Because it would have bit someone else and it would have been a like dangerous or menacing dog. They wouldn't have done anything that was in line with council restrictions in doing that. And so the dog would have been euthanized. Yep. And that would go into the pile of behavioral euthanasia, bit someone, dangerous dog, unstable, all of the the things when in reality, there's nothing wrong with the dog. The dog was great. Yep. It just was in a shitty situation. You know, like the lines we kind of have to draw in the sand over that kind of stuff where that's a family. It's their dog. They can do what they want with it, right? At the end of the day, I'm not the cops. Like, like uh, that's what I ended up saying to them. I was like, you know, I have no power over you, but you are really dangerously fucking this dog up. Yeah. I bit my tongue in saying, and everything else around here is a disaster <laughs> as well, right? I just sort of kept it focused on the dog. <laughs> and put some clothes on that fucking kid. Oh, and the kid's laying all over the dog yeah. and the dog was clearly uncomfortable. Like a couple of times I had to kind of rescue the dog from – I genuinely considered leaving with the dog. I genuinely, But then I could imagine them fucking suing me, you know what yeah. I mean, for stealing their beloved family pet. You know, like it was just a disaster. And that's what I mean is that if and when that dog was most likely behaviorally euthanized, that's a very different thing to a dog that has bitten someone with intent to fucking kill them and there was no discernible trigger and is now pacing around the house with its eyes facing in different directions. Yeah. You know, that's a really different thing. Yep. But the end result on paper is behavioral euthanasia, right? Yeah. Listening to you talking about this has jogged up some uncomfortable memories. <laughs> One of my most disheartening aspects of going around and doing in-home lessons with people is when I realise that the house is completely eccentric or in complete denial. Mm. When I see those aspects, again, I just know this is just a traumatic situation for the dog to be in. Yeah. People are eccentric in different phases, but just being in those states of complete denial when you're starting to talk to them about a dog behaviour, you're just thinking you don't even want to know the truth. Like you're listening to me with the intent to immediately reply to me on how wrong I am. Yeah, yeah. You just brought me here for an argument. How has the dog got any fucking hope going forward in that sort of situation? That's completely frustrating. And, it, you know, I feel for newer trainers, less experienced trainers who aren't used to life with other people's bullshit. They're just not prepared for that because they're very green in life itself and they're very green in dog training. How have you got hope? How have you got any chance to survive 
a situation like that with somebody who's like, they're almost dragged you down to their level. Mm. They bring you in and say, well, welcome to the shit show. I'm going to indoctrinate you on how to be a fucking crazy person Mm. by letting you see the carnival unfold before (laughs) your eyes of me making an absolute fuck up omelet with this dog, then ignoring you entirely as the seasoned professional, as the person who is the most experienced and the most knowledgeable person in this conversation by denying everything that you've got to say. Mm. It's a horrifying situation. Those situations for me, I find them extremely confrontational. There was one where, and I don't like lighting clients up, I don't even like talking badly of them, but there was one situation where I challenged the person over it. I said, did you take in anything that I've said? Like is anything that you and I have had a conversation about in the last 15 minutes, did any of it make any sense to you or was there anything that you took away from it? Like what's your takeaway point of this conversation? And they just said to me how wrong you are. Mm. And I said, effectively, you feel insulted by what I've said and you're angry with me and you don't want to listen to another thing I've got to say. And they said, well, you're very wrong and you're making this about me. And I said, it is about you. Mm. You're 100% right. It is about you. Like everything that's happening with the dog, you are basically the rudder of the rest of your dog's life going forward. Everything that the dog has endured up until this point in time, because you've had the dog since eight weeks of age, everything that's going wrong in this dog's life is because of you. And I've tried to break that to you in the most delicate and sensitive ways, but you're looking at me like I'm the piece of shit in this conversation. Mm. It's a hard one. Yeah, it is hard, mate. And those people are very few and far between. They are, luckily, luckily, because most of the people that- Oh, you couldn't do it. If you even had two of those a month, you'd quit. But that's why some people get burnout in this industry. That's why people suffer, have these really intense moments where they have to question their career, life, and everything about it because they meet that nemesis on the field where that person is just there to do battle with you. Yeah, I've only had a few clients like that, and in in every instance- it's been that the dog has done something that required, like it's a condition of the dog being alive that I'm there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like someone, you know, the neighbor yeah, or that's the person or hard. whatever has yeah. said, you need to do something about this. You need to call someone. And then that's the only reason they've called someone. So they don't actually think there's any issue and they don't care about the dog or, you know, there's many, every one of them's different. It's, it, they're all individual cases. And I've only had a few of those, but man, they're kicking the dick when they happen because you then you're like, fuck, this dog is stuck there, right? Like that's the situation where you're like, man, I can't take you because that will cause a bigger issue. And many times, like there has been times I've talked people out. Like I've, I've, I've left consoles with people's dogs. That's not off the table for me where I'm like, Hey, this is not going to work out for you. Right? Like this is, you don't want this dog. You clearly resent this dog. And in every instance that I've been able to do it, it's because the dog will be suitable for work somewhere. They've made a, a lunatic and I can say to them in that instance, I'm like, let me take this lunatic and like I can turn him into something. Mm. I can, I'm always up when people say he's not going to be my dog. Like he'll be my dog for the period of time it takes for me to train him. I'm selling him. I'm going to make money off of that. That's how it's going to go. But you clearly don't want the dog, right? Like this is a headache for you. And a few times people go for it, right? Like it's not an all the time thing, but there've been plenty of times where I've wanted to leave with the dog and people have like, no way. Like this is our dog and we're going to continue to fuck him up. Yeah. I had a colleague outside of dogs who was involved in child welfare. They suffered immeasurably and had a mental breakdown over that. Like the mental health was just literally trashed by watching children 
having to be remaining in a home with parents who were just fucked up beyond all control and a court order would allow those children to stay there and they just had to watch those little children as they're closing the door knowing what was going to happen to them. Oh, that would be like us with dogs times a million. It it is. There's a lot of tragedy that happens in the world but there's a lot of love as well. You can't not focus on those tragic moments sometimes. Like they stain your very fucking soul. Yeah. When you see those little puppies or those dogs and you know this is a person who doesn't feel like we are, like they're different from us. They don't care about animals and it's a commodity to them. It, they don't have any feeling about it. You know, like walking away from that situation, sometimes there's been times where I thought, I'm going to kick the fucking door in. I'm Jesus. literally going to snatch the soul out of that <laughs> body because I'm so- Yeah, but that's how I feel about yeah, it because yeah. that's my dark side in me saying that I have to go into that house and I have to stop what's going on here because this person they're going to torment that dog and you can see it. Like you literally can step forward in time and you can see what's going to go on there. Yeah. I know we're sidestepping slightly, but it's- No, we're we're on a trajectory that I've taken us on on purpose. Yes. We're headed somewhere. This is relatable to when people get angry about the use of tools and everything like that because they see and they, they think that thing is going to happen from other trainers because they're very much involved and they love the dogs too. So I have always tried to look at it from their point of view when they're not being sacks of shit and they're not being these collaborating lunatics. But when you get the decent people in the industry who worry about that type of thing and saying, all I'm worried about is that people are going to be so heavily handed with this dog that they'll end up getting it euthanized because they put the dog in a situation that it now can't control without being aggressive. Mm. So that little bundled up package, I understand that because when I see somebody I know who's going to torment this dog and create a fucked up situation and being vulnerable, I have felt this as a child myself, I understand that. I know what that looks like. I know what the trigger points are. I know the person who's going to do them. I know the appearance. It's a very much a familiar mindset and face and bodily structure when I can see that unfolding and that thinking. It's very structural. You can't not see it. Like I said, it stains your soul. You can't not see it. So when I know somebody's going to be like that with a dog, immediately that elevates me to a point where I get very frustrated and very angry about it Mm. and then think, what can I do about it? Legally, nothing because it hasn't occurred yet. Because what I am is I'm my own minority report at that point in time. I know the future is coming. I can see it. I'm not in a legal point where I can do anything about it. Yeah. I kind of pushed us a little bit into that direction because what I wanted to highlight, behavioral euthanasia, like all euthanasia should be avoided where possible. Yeah. Behavioral euthanasia, certainly in training groups, we think of it as being overdone. And the reason it's overdone is because of the mistreatment of dogs. There's tons and tons and tons of dogs that are killed by their owners because they were let down by their owners. It's and, just and, wastage. Yeah. And yeah. we as trainers can look at that and go, fuck, there's way too much of that. Right. Mm. And they can be let down by trainers as well who are unprepared, like your death before discomfort. Like we can't to have this conversation without at least acknowledging that there's people who think that's a real thing as well. Yeah. Right? It's so horrific. But- What we need to remember as trainers is when you know what you're doing with a dog, when you've expired all of the things that you, you know, you can do when other, other trainers with a greater skill set than you have said the same thing, Mm. when you've gotten fresh eyes onto it, when you've really put in the work, you've put in the time, you've, you've been thoughtful about it 
and the dog is still so dangerous that people are at risk or it will continue to torment itself before it eventually kills itself in some horrific way by injuring itself in one of its outbursts where it's not in control, that is the right time for behavioral euthanasia. And we need to, as a community, accept that that's the thing that happens, you know? And if you're a trainer and you've never had to do that, well, fucking congratulations, but be careful because that day's coming. You're going to encounter it. If you, mm. if, if you deal in solving people's problems, like if you're just doing group classes, pet dog training, that kind of stuff, cool. Hopefully you never see it. But if you're a person that answers the phone to people who are in big problems with their dog, eventually you're going to find one that's unstable and dangerous and you're going to have to make that decision. And I think that for us, I want our listeners and people who are maybe in that position to understand you're not in the same category as the people that just let their dog get fucked up to the point where it did something dangerous and now has to be legally is required to be euthanized because it did something that your incompetence allowed it to do. You're not in that bucket mm. and you're not a person that is going to say, well, this is an easy fix with punishment, but I'm against punishment. So I'm going to euthanize. I choose to euthanize a dog so that my soul stays clear, right? Like yep. I, I'm morally and ethically My conscience is clean. Yeah. I get mm. to go to sleep yep. because I didn't inject the dog and I didn't give a correction. You're not those things. Eventually you'll encounter a dog that's dangerous and is through no fault of its own. It could be genetics. It could be a life experience. It could be illness. It could be all these different things that could lead to a dog to be in that way. And chances are you're going to encounter them and hopefully not many, but it's going to happen at some point and you have to realize you're not, so long as you go through all those gates, right? Like all those checks and balances. You know, I think the main thing is like second opinion on yeah. all this stuff, right? Like, you got to look at that and go, hey, I'm not doing the same thing. This is the right step for the dog. This is the right thing to do in this moment. <sighs> Heavy topic. While I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about the story I told of my colleague who defied me in order to try and impress me about going in and yeah. trying to train a dog that I'd already told the owners that that dog needed to be euthanized. The dog was the most craziest dog I've ever seen in my life. And that's saying something. Still to this day, I call that the Charles Manson of my dogs. Mm. It was a dog that I I looked at it. I didn't even bother going out with the dog. I just said, no, not doing it. We're done. My colleague went out there. She took on such horrific injuries that it ended her career and I haven't seen her since then. Mm. I know she's still around. It's like people who are chasing a ghost. I know she's still around. I know she's still alive. But it destroyed her body, mind, and soul. Yeah. So that person who was talented and lovely and generous and giving and beautiful inside and out, lovely person, left the industry for good, and that is traumatic for me mm. and traumatic for people who also knew her as well. Mm. And those people, they should both be in jail for allowing that to happen. Mm. They should both be in jail. I was experienced enough at the time to say this dog is completely beyond help. The dog had fucked them up. They're wearing long sleeves when I went around there because the dog had bitten them so badly so frequently. They knew what they had, but because they were going through that stage of saying, you know, but he's still our baby. Yeah. That's what the lady said to me. He's still our baby. And I said, he ain't no baby and he ain't your baby. And I'm not trying to insult you. I'm not, I understand the dilemma that's here. And I said, if there was any way that I could help save your dog, that's my ethos. That's what's in my heart and soul 
to want to do for you and your dog. And I said, but there is no hope here. Mm. And I said, I've never felt so completely intimidated by your dog. And I said, that's not happened to me. I'm usually excited about getting bitten. It was bitten. a cattle dog or something. It was a cattle it? dog, yeah. 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 And I, as I said, I said, I'm excited about getting bitten by dogs. I do this for a living. My full-time job is training law enforcement dogs and getting bitten every Thursday night and every Sunday by no less than 50 dogs a day. Without a word of a lie, you can come down to Australian dog training and you can see the queue of dogs and I'm working every fucking night. I said, I've been doing this for years. Your dog is is completely in a category of its own that I've never encountered before. And I said, that's a tormented dog in the backyard there, one that is not in control of his mind and body. Yeah. And I said, he doesn't know what he wants to do. His, his eyes are shaking around in his head. This dog's eyes were rattling around in its head. It's a phenomenon I've never seen before. To pick up something that we've been pulling apart so extensively, if you're the type of person who has a dog like this, really think it through when people around you care enough to tell you, like if they sit down with you and they care enough to tell you, like they're taking a chance telling you because they know how sensitive this topic it is. They care about you. What they're not doing is just trying to dispatch a dog for no reason. What they're trying to do is, again, they can see into the future. They know where this is going. And even if they bring in a professional to help advise you on all these situations, at least listen to them. At least take into strong consideration, yes, it's very hurtful, the information you're going to hear. It's going to fucking tug every fucking string that's attached between your soul and that dog. It is literally going to feel like it's tearing something out of your chest. I've been there. I know it. I've, I've shared those experiences. I've cried with people that I've had to be in this situation. It's vulnerabilities that I don't like feeling myself, but I felt them nonetheless. Mm. And I've realized this is happening for all the right reasons. Nothing wrong is happening here. Like you're not doing anything wrong. And yes, it's going to hurt like hell. There is going to be some fucking sufferance like you've never felt before. You've also got to consider what if that dog kills a colleague yeah. or it kills uh, a friend that comes around to visit me or a family member or something like that because the potential of that type of dog doing that is very, very high. I think we should wrap it up. But yeah. one, like I did want to at least acknowledge that sometimes when people find themselves stuck with very dangerous dogs like that, it can just be the guilt of the relief that they know they will feel when they do euthanize a dog. So, Not immediately. No, but like that's what they're like because they know this dog is terrible. It's a disaster. It's ruining my life. But then, you know, really good people will just sort of martyr themselves because they know when the day comes when that dog dies and it will eventually, they're going to feel relieved that it's gone. And the guilt that can be attached to that, it can be overbearing. Yes. And so that's at least something that like I, I acknowledge that that is the case. I think that that's very often the case with people. I felt that. Bart told me one time when Zot died, he told me he's like it was the strangest set of emotions he's ever felt. You know, truly that dog was, he, you know, he's, he's, he's everything. He won the championships with the dog. The dog was uh, everything and blah, blah, blah but was also a fucking dangerous dog, like very dangerous dog and could be handled by no one but him. And so there's that mixed emotions about like, I'm very upset that he died, but also like my life is much better without him. Those type of dogs in some ways become your jailer. Yeah. I know in some degrees Ladybug is mine. 
you know, I mean, there's so many fucking caveats around caring and looking after Ladybug. Yeah. She has become a little bit of my jailer. Yeah. Because there are a lot of things that I cannot do and Narelle and I because of Ladybug. Yeah. But, you know, she's you not going to kill choice. anyone. Yeah, I've yeah. made that choice and she's not going to kill anyone. Yeah. Those sort of situations are completely confrontational. It's going to be momentarily the worst day of your life, but also on the other side of that, one of the most liberating as well. Yeah. All right. That's it. Heavy episode of Heavy, 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 heavy. But for anybody that listens to this, some people, might, it might trigger you. It might make you feel a little angry. Other people, it might make you feel a little relief if you've been struggling in these moments yourself. All I'm going to say to you to finish up, because we are finishing up, is just think about quality of life. And when I'm talking about that, I'm not just talking about the dog. Mm. All right. That's it. Another episode of the Canon Paradigm. Yep. As always, if you like what we hear. Just like it, rate it, share it, subscribe it. You're saying this so sad. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to end this heavy note on a light note. I'm going to see Helmet Riser this weekend. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, by the time this is out, I've seen it. Where's that happening? Down in Melbourne. Oh, nice. He's the OG. Yes, he is. I'm super excited. Yeah. Who's hosting him? Melbourne Sport Dog Club. Oh. Yep. So I'm headed down there. Alex is. I'm gonna stay with Alex. It's gonna be a wonderful weekend. It will be. I'm super excited. Mm. And I'm not gonna talk about it yet. But there's like some fucking cool shit coming up. Some big news. And especially if you're a dog trainer in Sydney, get excited. If you're in the Patreon, also be excited. Yes, I know about it. Yeah, it's, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. If you want to support the show, jump in the Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you a giant backlog of episodes, new stuff going forward, and maybe something exciting. Quick thing I need to say about the Patreon. What about it? I saw somebody who was complaining about the content in Patreon mm. that realized if they upgrade their tier, they get access to a whole bunch of other shit. <laughs> and because they were saying, oh my God, I upgraded my Patreon tier and I just found there's a whole bunch of other stuff yes. in there. So the $3 tier is a B- giant backlog of stuff that's in there as well as bits and pieces going forward. Yep. $10 is a live stream every month. Yep. And after that, it's like, because you like us. Yeah, and there's other <laughs> things there's that other are being put in There's other stuff in all of them that yeah. we put, like, randomly put in there when I get something that I think's worth being put in there. Yep. That's how it works. Yes. It says it on Patreon. It does. The other thing to be careful of on Patreon, Patreon's a bit of a fucking, bit of a pain in the ass of a platform, is that if you choose your own amount, that can lock you out of the tiers. It's very annoying. Oh, right. I didn't yeah. know that. So like if you go like, I'm going to give you guys, instead of going into the $10, I'm going to give you guys $10.70, then it doesn't put you into the $10 tier. It goes, thanks for your $10.70. So choose one of the Yeah, the that's amount. a bit. It oh, pains in the house, Patreon. Yeah. They're pains in the house. They are. And, yeah, anyway, that's a problem for us going yeah. forward. Yep. All right, good talk, everyone. Get in Patreon. Love you in there. Don't Um, forget our Teespring. Teespring. Get yourself one of those. Yep. Or a giant wall art, giant wall tapestry. Yes. That'd be exciting. Yes, people have got them. Yes. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. You can, you know, group source information in there. Just be cool. Don't be a dickhead to anyone. Yep. And if you want to reach out to us directly, you can shoot us an email or just get in contact with us individually. But our email is info at the canonparadigm.com. Goodbye. (laughs) 